told the president to say, just been diagnosed with cancer, I'm on treatment, and I might at some stage ask you to release me because I really don't, also don't want to be put into the state. Then the president said, until you are sick, you are very sick, then that's fine. But we'll ask your deputy minister to do most of the work whilst you're undergoing treatment. If it's not working, you'll come back to me. So I, I really confronted it. I used to say to people, be strong. It's my time now to hear my voice. Uh, let me be strong and do what I have to do. And what I have to do is to prepare for my death. Imagine being told your life is coming to an end and you're starting to plan your funeral. That is exactly what happened to Basic Education Minister Angie Mochecha when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Between 2010 and 2012, Mochecha decided to fight for her life. But little did she know that as she juggled debilitating rounds of chemotherapy, she'd soon be fighting for a career and her legacy too. A massive textbook distribution scandal hit Limpopo and suddenly it seemed everyone was turning on her, even some of her comrades. I remember that afternoon in the newsroom when we heard about the 5,000 textbooks found dumped in the Palaboroa region. How on earth, we thought, what was the minister doing? How could she be asleep at the wheel like that, especially given how important her portfolio was? I covered the string of press conferences and marches that followed. The nation demanded answers and action. This is Eyewitness News. The presidency and the task team appointed by Jacob Zuma to investigate the Limpopo textbook crisis won't comment on new reports that Basic Education Minister Angie Motsecha knew about it. Who is behind the latest incident of textbook dumping in Limpopo? About two bucky loads of books from various subjects and grades have been found in the Minister Angie Motsecha says her department is negotiating with the National Treasury to secure more funding to support her catch-up plan in Limpopo. The province remains gripped by a textbook crisis with some schools... Motsecha survived the scandal and survived the cancer. She overcame. My name is Mia Lindiki, and in this podcast series, I will be looking into the intricate lives of some of South Africa's most resilient politicians, how they carry responsibilities that come with their work while juggling their own personal struggles. It's one o'clock on a dusty, dry Thursday afternoon in Pretoria. I have an appointment with Basic Education Minister Angie Motsecha at her office in Struben Street, a busy place that overlooks the treetops and the bustling streets of the nation's capital. The Basic Education Minister's schedule is tight, so tight I'm nervous we're going to miss our interview with her. She just got home to Gauteng from Cape Town last night. It's par for the course, the flying back and forth between the two provinces. Minister, you can sit here. The mic is just going to be in the middle. We just need to quickly mic you up. Are you comfortable there? Yeah, comfortable. Thanks so much for joining us, Minister, for this very special... Not everyone is cut out for a demanding portfolio, but Minister Angie Motsecha has overseen the basic education for more than a decade. How does she do it? She makes it sound easy, with the help of her very close family at least. I've been very lucky that I come from... It's a big family, so we help each other a lot with children. My mother, you won't believe me, my mother is 88 
so she's always been around. I mean, when I went to, when I came to national parliament, she used to come to my house and stay for a week so that she can look after the kids and then over the weekend go back to her house. And when she really got frail, so we've decided that she must spend more time at my house and go to her house occasionally. But I'm very like I have a very strong, supportive family. I mean, when I had my child, I was very ill. Uh, I had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, and I was on heavy medication, couldn't breastfeed. And at the same time, she had her own child, so she was breastfeeding for me. So three months' time, I was able to release my child to go and stay with her so that she can breastfeed for me. So we really added strong film. So we, if I can't pick up kids, she phones, they drop them, so her kids, that's why I have raised more than 10 kids because we help each other raise our children. So I really, I don't, I don't think I felt the strain a lot between my work and, uh, and raising children. When I was raising them, I, I really, I, I was a driving mom. I always tell young people, drop your kids at school. So the car conversations are much more productive than house conversations because there's no distraction. You're caught up in traffic, you're able to talk about everything. So I used to drop my kids, so it gave me time. I used to pick them up. I can interpret every sport. I used to be a rugby. My son played rugby, played cricket. He was in water polo. So I made it a point that when it came to his school matters, we uh, should support him and really be friends with him and it helped me so I can interpret the rugby score, the cricket score. And yeah, so sometimes paying attention, you also grow with your children and, and learn things that you would not have learned even from your own background. So I really did enjoy raising kids. Is it a busy family? Do you all talk a lot? <laughs> no, it is. And as I say, we've always lived in this extended family. So it's either Christmas is at my mother's house most of the time, or it's it, we, we go to Limpopo to my husband's family. So Christmas tends to be very busy. It's either we're at my sister's house. So it's a plan to say, whose house are we visiting? I'm not a good entertainer, so I'm willing to run around, uh, be the one who buys drinks, not cook. But uh, it's normally not like a limited family with me and my kids. It's me and family. And they are actually very big uh, fun occasions because that's the only time we have to get nieces, nephews. That's the only time we had to visit my husband's family. So it used to be a ritual until he lost his elder sister who was very close to him. So we rarely now go to Limpopo, but that used to be an annual pilgrimage that come, some, sometimes we even drive on Christmas Day, but we have to be with his family on Christmas Day. We sit next to each other on a couch in our office. The minister picks up her floral-covered photo album, and we flip through it together. Some photos have fallen out over the years, but one that remains instantly catches my eye. picture was, athletic, was my athletics team, I was an athletics oh, wow. teacher. So, uh, this is when I was at my this, this I was playing netball. Oh. <laughs> I used to play netball with Ria. She was a shooter. Oh, Ria. Yeah. A young, slender and shy Angie Motsecha poses for a photo at a sports event during her school years. She tells me she was bullied, teased and publicly shamed at school 
It's difficult to believe when you look at the woman she's become. And she's the first to admit that shy, withdrawn little girl is still there. She still finds it hard to be constantly in the public eye. And I'm, a, I'm a very shy person even now. And Hope knows it takes a lot from me to even go into interviews to see myself on, on TV. And I think it's also this very hard upbringing that the self-esteem gets lowered when I was begin to reflect to say what makes me have such because part of being shy is also low self-esteem about yourself. So I'm, I've always grown up a very shy child, but also because of my lisping. So when you speak, it will uh, tease you about the fact that you can pronounce certain words properly. That also forces you not to speak a lot because you worry that they're going to see that you, you are lisping. And but the other thing, because my mother was cheeky, I think we grew up very cheeky people. And what made me to be bullied, just I refused to be bullied as a child. So when somebody takes my pen, then I fight back, then I have enough enemies. When somebody says, we go this way, if I don't want to, I just say, no, I don't want So you always find that there are bullies around. And I really always used to find myself bullied. It's only when, when I was older to say, what is it that I was doing wrong? And I just realized that it still remains in me even now in politics. I just refuse to be bullied, even in, 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 in political structures. I, I don't bully anybody, I don't manipulate anybody, and I refuse to be manipulated. Mm. And I think it's really also a very hard and difficult upbringing that you stand on your own. She used to say, don't lean against anybody. So you couldn't even ask somebody to accompany you. She says, no, you go, you must be independent, stand on your own, don't lean against people. So that also helped me to develop independence and just go and fight because we, we were not allowed to be weak. Hmm. Tell me about discipline in your house um, as a child with your siblings. I mean, were you covering for each other, you know, just to don't let mom know that I did this? I mean, were you sticking out for your sister? No, it was hard. And so, that's why I said it drew us very close. And my mother sometimes thought she has us, and sometimes we had to develop coping mechanisms around her because her policy was that you can't sit during the day. You must be doing something. You are not allowed to sit and not do anything. Mm. So if you've cleaned, you've done the laundry, because you used to do everything, you have to then clean up the wardrobes. I said, but my cupboards are mixed up. You're sitting. So we're just never allowed to sit. It's either you're reading or working. And then says, no, you'll sleep at night. So what we used to do, when, because she was a teacher, she, she, so we had a gate, a, 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 a steel gate, and then we'll put a stone so that it gives us a warning that she's coming in, then we jump and do something. But <laughs> 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 she would notice I was to sit down, so she would just think we're busy and maybe we've, and maybe we've just started uh, uh, unpacking the cupboard. So we had to find ways around her to say, if she finds you seated, she's going to scream, to say, are you seated, there are dishes, you are seated, there's dust, you are seated, there's following. So we used to really find ways around her. And, and that's why I said brought us close because we had to be, to, 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 to really be each other's keeper against her. So we used to gang up uh, against her. We used to gossip about her. We used to, at some stage, she was... <laughs> The enemy because we didn't like her rules, all of us. And if she, I remember she was beating, I think she was beating one of us. And my young apparatus, I know this is a declaration of also, Mama, here we are. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> we're, supposed, we're fighting now, so against you. And she, she's a very temperamental person. She started throwing her, 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 her crockery. And that was the best. And because she really felt completely <laughs> under siege. And we would run and go and call my father because we really found her to be this very difficult one. That's why my sister says, half the time, I just, when I see a person being nice to me, I said, I think she's going to reveal herself that she's my mother. Not this one. This one's just too straight for me. Her mother was a difficult person, strict and temperamental, but so were many parents at the time raising children in a township like Soweto under an oppressive government. Her father was a shield, the one who helped her escape from reality. He realized that we were in trouble. Now that I think about it, that he's got this very cheeky wife who's shouting at children all the time. And he really used to be the one who stands up for us. That's why I say sometimes we used to even go and, tra- and chase him in Shepins to say, Mommy's screaming at us again. Please come and help us. So he always provided. He would even take us out for a picnic as children with him alone and take us out, have a watermelon seat, just to be away from home to give us peace. And when he walked into the house, well, as much he, he just calls my name. And I used to feel quite embarrassed to say, what about the other kids? But because we're close with my siblings, it never became an issue, but it really used to make me uncomfortable that he, he really calls up for me. And yeah, and it was quite sad that he was killed whilst I was in detention. And I arrived on his funeral because they didn't even tell me that they're taking me to his funeral. They just they came to myself to say, you're going home. And I thought I was being released. I was quite happy. When we arrived at the gate, it's my father's funeral. And I'm meeting the heads at the gate. And they had to take him back for me to see him for the last time. And after his funeral, I was taken back to prison. And it really still pains me because he really loved me. And was quite sad that I didn't even see him uh, uh, the last few days because I think I had been in detention for more than three months and had not seen him for that time. How old were you then? I was already teaching. I was at the university. I was, I think, in my 30s. No, I was not even aware that he, he has been killed. And we were very, very close with him. And mm. I think he was happy with me that you know, I've been to universities. I was working. I managed to buy him a car when I went to teach. So we're very close with him and I just knew that I was his favorite child. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to deal with the pain. Still, it just doesn't the, go. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. When I was looking at the pictures, I saw a picture of me with him and the, the emotions came again. I just mm. feel that I, I wish it can, it, it, I, I had, he had died from a natural cause. I wish I had been able to say certain things to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you want to show me the picture so I can actually, you know, see? It's, yeah, it's this one. Oh, is it? Let's see, oh, this wow. is during my graduation. Wow, is this you? It was me at you university. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it was. It's oh, wow. me and him. Oh, that's a lovely picture. Mm. When you were raised in a house where your mother scolded your father in front of the children and raising a hand to your siblings, 
you almost think there's no hope for this person to break the cycle. But Motsecha did. The minister says her upbringing helped her to stand her ground and face her bullies. I mean, the mere fact that we're never allowed to sit down at home, I think has enabled me to have the energy to, to do all the things that I'm supposed to do. I've always strived, strived to do them well. My mother had a post to say, if something's not right, it's wrong. It's either right or wrong, there's nothing in between. She will tell you if something is incomplete, it's incomplete. So if you're starting a job, if it's incomplete, so it means it's not complete. And those are the rules, and that one found herself getting to... And she will just always say, this thing of saying, you'll only rest when you sleep. So even now, I find myself, I was, I find myself unable to, to relax. I... I have to consciously say, no, I, I should be tired now. Uh, I should sit down. But even when I knock off from work, I drive around. So sometimes it really works against you that you, you just don't develop the right attitude to life because you have to be able to rest and take things easy and slow down. But the negatives also have helped me because I used to watch it and say, you know, if God gives me a husband, I never shot at my husband. And I never do. I used to say, I never lift up my hand to my children. It's so painful. She doesn't know that it had so much to be beaten. I'll never raise my child. And I've never beaten my son. So just also looking at the painful things in the upbringing just made me to take to make certain decisions that I would never do it myself. I'll never shout at a person. I will never use very strong abusive, because she, she, she used to say anything she wants and to hurt and say, I'll never use her. So it also helped me in that sense. But it also helped me to be fearless. I mean, we were staying in, in Pinville, so it was opposite the, the graveyard, the graveyard. She will, everybody will be, all this township meets that, hey, the ghosts wake up at night and wander in the township. You can't go out at night. My mother would say, do you think, unless you've put those ghosts to wait for you, there's no ghost. You just go. And just sometimes to be fearless, we were also raised by my grandmother. And I tell people that the idiom with which she used in my older age, it, it just helps me. Yeah, where the African idiom, my grandmother always used things and tells. And there are times when it's difficult to take a decision in the position I am. And I remember my grandmother, every time you were hesitant to do something, she would say, hey, my child, you know the donkey never arrived at the market. So she used to tell me about this story about the, the donkey which drowned because everybody kept on advising. So even I sit here and then have to really take it. decision. say, hey, you know, this donkey is going to die on the way, so I have to carry it. If it falls, it falls. So, so it's also the idiom, I think, the soft part, the idiom that my, my, my grandmother raised us with, helps me sometimes to stand up even when I feel this is scary. If I take this decision, this is going to happen. There's going to be a, a, a backlash. But I just say, hey, this donkey has to arrive at the market, whatever the circumstances are. Those principles, to take a stand even in frightening moments, were guiding light during the apartheid era. She was a young teacher and became an active underground member. And that's why in the end, I just feel I don't owe anybody because I was not recruited by anybody. I found myself in the struggle. As a child, 
my grandmother that says that I say raised us is a daughter of one of the founding members of the ANC. She was a president of Sanak in the Free State when the ANC was formed. So when we grew up as children, I was not quite conscious about, but I could see that there's something happening. If there are raids, my grandmother and some groups will be praying. I don't think I was political conscious. I was just curious as a child to be amongst the things that were happening, but I think slowly. And even when I went to Teflop, as a follower, I would just go to public meetings when the stone throwing, I'm part of it, but not as a leader or anything. Where I became intensely conscious and deliberately conscious was when I started teaching as a young teacher. But where I really, I started becoming active, becoming active not as a follower, it's when I joined your, uh, the, 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 the teacher unions, then when the UDF was formed, then joined and it just led one to, to one way to other. Then found you, I found myself with women's structures. Then found myself invited by the ANC to say they want me to come. And as I said, I just found myself, no one recruited, I just found myself being asked to come. There was no revolutionary moment, but there was no one who said to me, come and join the ANC. I was just invited. And the question was, what is that they had heard and seen about me that they thought I was trustworthy to come and do underground work for them? Tell us a bit more about the underground work. I mean, do we actually know what really happened there? Is there stories still to be told? No, there are. Uh, it's only now, maybe, and sometimes <laughs> we're speaking with, at other time with, I mean, some going to say, if we're asked to do this at our age, would we be able to do it again? I said to you, I'm not sure if... Uh, the risks that were involved, I would not have over, just overlooked them the way uh, they, I did. Maybe I was younger, idealistic, or it just happened that it was at that moment that it had to be done. I mean, you'll wake up as a young child and you're told as a person who is now 20 years in prison for your liberation. You just feel that you can't sit here and enjoy yourself when there's somebody there. So you have to do something to push that that person comes in. So I think just stories of, of, your, of, your, of, your, of your leaders were some of the things that propelled us as young people to say it should be unfair. This is a battle that involves all of us. Other people have risk for it, so you can't sit comfortable and just think you can go about it. So you have to, to really make sure that it happens. They have to be supported. They can't be alienated. There are lots of stories which we tell about the stupid things we did, how we would, especially even internal, because it was quite scary. When I think about it and all the things that happened, I used to ask myself to say, after having come close with Mama Sela and was following you, and I managed to escape through the kitchen of your Kentucky, and then, because at least people were conscientized, and I, I still proceeded with my trip to Natal. Uh, I didn't feel scared. Mm. I don't know. Maybe it's because of the pressure of saying, it has to be done, we have to do it. We went to KZN with the NECC, then we, our car was bombed, we were chased, we had to come through chimneys, and you, 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 and everything was bent there, but we proceeded to go to the conference when we knew that we have been spotted, they're looking after us. The hotel staff helped us to, to, to escape the hotel by wearing things differently, and... Uh, we had to, to, to really dress like prostitutes so that they think we're in the hotel. And then we proceeded to go to the conference. Uh, so there are lots of stories. With hindsight, I say... Very brave. Yeah, I say... No, honestly, I mean, 
your underground, we will... I remember the other time I had to hide arms at my home without my parents knowing because there was a group which was moving into Soweto and then they got a warning to say there's a roadblock. And my home was on the main road. So they quickly, they knew there was a comrade there. They said, hey, we have this armaments and we told there's a roadblock. We have to hide them. So I said, no, let's take away coal quickly from my parents. And I, without thinking, because why would they... mom. It's my friend, exactly, with my mom. So we quickly removed the coal, through, put in the guns, and, then, and they knew, because they were chasing this car, they knew that the, those guns possibly ended up in that strip. And I was quite, and we used to laugh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay, we used to laugh to say, they know these guns are here, but, uh, and we, and now, with hindsight, when I think about the dangers to say, mm-hmm. was it idealism or was it, and maybe it was real, because we just felt that if somebody can stay in prison for 20 years, there is no way you can sit outside and say it's right not to do anything. So there are lots of stories that we tell. I sometimes tell my kids, I can I say, how did you do it? Yeah. Mom did it. Yeah, just say, we're going to threaten. I mean, we'll be raided in our homes. They will throw things at our homes. And it just felt that, well, Mm. other people have died for it. So it's unfortunate. You hope that your family doesn't get harmed, but it has to be done. Was there ever a moment, I mean, the apartheid police were brutal, heartless. Had a moment where you thought, this is dangerous. Many moments, that's why I say. Near-death experience. I mean, when Mama said, because I was at Uncle Charlie then, that, 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 we were going to go to a, to a conference in Devon, and I think they were following us up with some of the vets kids. And as I, then we have, because we're waiting for the lift to pick us up there. So I decided that I, let me go and buy some food. Then I could see him at the mirror, and he was following, I mean, he was a killer master. And I just felt that, yeah, this one is waiting outside. Said to these kids at the tellers to say, I have to go in now, and I have to go that other side. Somebody might kidnap me anytime. And fortunately, everybody understood, even the workers to say, sneak this other way, there's an exit this way, you run as much as going to be dark when he, he, and go this direction, just out of so there will be those, but what is said, after escaping because there were no even cell phones, I had to Devon to the conference and so there will be those moments where you just felt that, oh my god and it was just a narrow escape um even traveling to go outside to the ANC, sometimes you'll just hear. Remember, we once went to go and meet Tambo in, in, in Stockholm. And then we heard on the radio that <laughs> the government had heard that there's a group of academics who have gone to, to and they're waiting for them. So you go there knowing that, oh my goodness me, when I come back, these guys are going to, 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 to get to me. So what am I going to do? So half the time, we don't even stay home. So. Fortunately, I was teaching at vets, and then at university, they couldn't raid. But we knew anytime they're coming for you. And you will feel safe when they at least put you under detention, unlike you running too much, and they end up really getting desperate and hurting you. So you just feel that if I'm in detention, at least they're safe, they can account for me and other things. But when you leave there, you want the next action. Yeah. <laughs> And your kids, where were they at the time? No, I didn't have kids by then. Um, Fortunately, my first child was born after unburning. 
That's the other thing. I always tell people that I had children late because I was just too scared to to have children. And I used to ask myself that will I be carrying children at my back running around? Because half the time you were on the run. And there was no time to to settle because even trust boyfriends, so it might be an infiltration. So you, you really there was just no time for personal social life. Do you think our generation understand what you and others had to go through when sometimes when people criticize you for whatever reason do you think that do you know what i had to go through for this country and fine i don't feel like that i just pity sometimes young people to say if they knew that they have a safe country to build around and you know mandela once said to, to young people was addressing them to say we forged the struggles for you to build a country and that's the part that I just say I think if young people could just focus on moving forward and just don't constrain themselves with things that don't matter it could be worse and it's better so they, they, they have something to start working from they can make this country great they shouldn't be fighting over uh, things that they're fighting over racial just small just sometimes find that the battle that we've been through has been big. This is a small issue. It's safe. There are laws. There's an environment. There's no one who, 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 who will stay. So the, those who have to go to school must go to school. When they go to university, they must succeed. When they work, they must give it to themselves because they have it on the platter for them to make it work. So we've done it for them because we had to do it and they don't owe anybody. So they don't have to be, to try and prove themselves, to be radical, to be rude, to be, they just don't have to do it. They don't need to prove anything. It has been given to them. We have, the country has been fought for them. It's for them to make it work. But if they waste their time, they take drugs, they drink, they raise their drinking, they don't finish school, they just don't devote themselves to work. I just find it sad to say if these young people knew that it's for them to make it work. They should just make this country work. And they should create peace amongst themselves. There must be harmony, there must be cohesion. There's no need to fight each other over race, over other things. There's no need. There's a country for them to build. Motsecha's many roles, including minister, a member of the ANC's National Executive Committee and president of the Women's League, have seen her waging various public, often bruising political battles. Amid it all, she silently fought the battle to stay alive. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010. At first, she accepted a lot. She started to plan her own funeral. But... Her fighting spirit wouldn't let her give up. Let me not have self-pity. Let me sort myself out. I have a child who's a minor is at school. My mother was old. And let me not waste time just pitying myself. Let me do what I have to do now. Sort myself out in terms of the family. Sort myself. Just make them understand and appreciate that this may happen so that if... And I just used to say, you know, in Sutu they say, sickness reports death. And I said, I was quite, I'm quite lucky that my death is being reported to me. Let me just face it, if it's coming. Let me face it, let me sort myself out, let me not have self-pity, let me not fight. In any case, I'm going that way. And it helped me because, and also let me cooperate with my doctors. And if they say I have to go for, initially I refused to go on, 
uh, uh, chemo. Just said, I'm not going to go through those things. I'm going to lose my hair and other things. If it's the time, it's time. But my doctor persuaded me to say, let's try and see how it works. And I have this thing that if I do something, let me do it properly and do it to the full. And just working exactly with what my doctor said I should do, then I think I've, I've survived cancer. But not feeling pity for myself. And so I've seen people, I've supported lots of people with cancer. Did I think that they're the only ones who deserve cancer? So it's my turn. So let me be strong. Let me do the things I said to them they must do. I'm going to work up to the end. I told the president to say, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I'm on treatment, and I might at some stage ask you to release me because I really don't, also don't want to be bad into the state. Then the president said, until we are sick, we are very sick, then that's fine. But we'll ask your deputy minister to do most of the work whilst you're undergoing treatment. If it's not working, you'll come back to me. She remains stoic, almost brushing aside her life-threatening experience. The minister's spokesperson is hovering nervously. We're over time and the minister has another engagement. She has a whole nation's children to think about, after all. As we stand up from her comfort green couch, she carries on talking, telling the story of how she nearly died in the snow when she arrived in Luxembourg, working in the underground structures for the ANC. We start packing up our equipment, and her office suddenly isn't quite as friendly. The time for chit-chat is over, and it's back to business for the minister. She sits at a large table in her office and starts browsing through a pile of documents placed in front of her. And as we leave, we hear her telling her staff, you can bring them in. Thanks for joining me. Listen out for my other podcasts in this series where I sit down with ministers Lindiwe Zulu, Stella Ndebeni Abrams and Barbara Creasy. You've been listening to an EWN podcast written by Mia Lindeke, produced by Peter Thron, subbed by Charlotte Kilbane.